0: And I'm Joe Wisenthal.
1: Joe, it feels like there's a lot of uh, terrible things happening in the world at the moment.
0: Uh, yeah, it, it it does. The news has been uh, pretty grim between the virus, Afghanistan, natural disasters. I would uh, I would I would agree with your assessment.
1: Yeah, and I think the the sort of um, pace of the bad news means that a lot of stuff is kind of getting buried in the news cycle very quickly after it happens so we're recording this on August seventeenth um just a few days ago there was a massive earthquake in haiti uh, I think more than a thousand people are believed to be dead but that death toll is probably going to go up some more um, but that event has already sort of been superseded by events in Afghanistan and people have just sort of moved on um, to the next big uh, global drama. But I wanted to dedicate this episode to Haiti, because if you think about what the country has recently experienced, you know, the earthquake that I just mentioned came off the back of its president getting assassinated just last month. And then, of course, before that, Haiti has had a long history of natural disasters um, Hurricane Matthew in 2016, a really, really catastrophic earthquake back in 2010. And the country itself is one of the poorest in the world. So it in many ways, it just feels like Haiti can't take a break or catch a break.
0: Right. I would say pretty much all of uh, my life, I think Haiti has been, been known for uh, violence, extreme poverty, International attempts at reviving uh, the economy or domestic institutions that seem largely to have failed, and then of course uh, the sort of uh, unforeseen uh, disasters. But I think you know, within particularly the Western Hemisphere, Haiti is uh, known to have had an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary, extraordinarily bad fortune.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned international efforts to revive the economy because today we are going to be talking about um, one possible effort and possibly the most obscure of those efforts which involves bonds um, that were issued more than let's see almost 200 years ago um as part of Haiti's uh independence movement and there is a discussion now about whether or not you could possibly um sort of unwind that debt in order to pay reparations to Haiti so it's sort of um an obscure thing, but it fits right into odd lots, and uh, you know our obsession with old debt. So we're going to get into it.
0: I'm I'm looking forward to this. This is uh, odious debt. One of the um, one of the topics that I think you have really done a great job, sort of uh, bringing to the forefront of media and odd lots, and looking forward to this and talking about this in the Haiti context.
1: Oh, thank you. Um, well, I have to credit uh, one of our guests, uh, Mitu Galati. He's a professor at the University of Virginia. He's the one that introduced me to this concept. And we also have his fellow researcher, uh, Ugo Panitza, a professor at the Graduate Institute of Geneva. So welcome, Mitu and Ugo. Thank you. Shall we start with um, the very basics for people who haven't heard the concept of odious debt? before. What exactly do we mean when we say odious debt? So there
2: there are at least two meanings of odious debt as it's discussed, both in the popular press and in the academic slash legal literature. One meaning is just, you know, any debt that you don't like, it just has a bad odor and you don't want to pay it back. The more technical legal meaning of odious debt is that it is debt incurred by a despotic leader without the approval of the population and the knowledge of the creditors that these debts are being used for purposes that are contrary to any benefit that would. Result for the populace. So the classic example, uh, and you know, during the Bush administration, odious debts became very popular when uh, the U.S. Uh, went into Iraq. Uh, the, the example was Saddam Hussein borrowing hundreds of billions of dollars to buy arms, and those arms were then used uh, to oppress the Iraqi people. So that 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 is the popularized version of this odious debt concept.
0: You you mentioned, okay, so we can understand easily enough this idea that if a a despotic leader borrows money, doesn't use the money in service of the public, and then after they go, uh, it's odious, the idea that the public would then have to bear the cost of that debt. How much is in, in the determination or the thinking of when debt is odious How much or how difficult is it or how important is it to establish that the lender understood this, that when they were lending, that when someone bought the sovereign debt of a given country, that they were buying into debt that really was not uh, going to help the public in any way?
2: So usually the lender is not really analyzed in these discussions of odious debts, I mean, almost every discussion of odious debts, for example, take the Saddam Hussein uh, case, which is, you know, the most recent. A lot of the debts there were literally arms dealers selling arms to Saddam. But the primary focus was on the despotism of the leader of Saddam it's really only in a case like Haiti and sort of more broadly colonial or imperial debts uh, that you begin to think about the lender. And that's not something that we have traditionally done.
1: So I want to get into the exact um, situation with Haiti and and the money involved. But before we do, you know, we're talking about a broad definition of odious debt that really focuses on the borrower. And as you mentioned, the classical example is a despot who borrows lots of money that doesn't necessarily benefit their country's population. How did that particular interpretation of odious debt come into being? Because in some ways, like it seems very, very um, defined and specific.
2: So this is an interesting question that you ask and uh, you know I've been working on this and Um Ugo probably has a different perspective but he's also been working on this for a long time we worked together on uh, debts incurred by Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela and it's, Sort of, I always took it for granted that you know, if you have a despotic leader borrowing, then the future uh, governments, especially if they're you know democratic governments, they shouldn't be burdened by this debt. And it, it sort of seemed natural and logical and sensible. And I didn't think about it; it seemed right until uh, I started uh, working with Hugo and uh, our other two co-authors about the Haitian debt and. In that context, uh, one of our other co-authors, Mark Weidemeyer, uh, started asking the question of, you know, why uh, have we framed this doctrine in this particular fashion? And my best guess from the literature and talking to social anthropologists who studied this in more detail is that it's a product of the interests who created this doctrine. This is a doctrine that was created by the U.S. State Department in the late 1800s after the Spanish-American War. They didn't want to pay uh, the debts that had been incurred by Spain using Cuba as collateral. And so they said, you know, you were despotic leader, leaders putting down an independence movement. And then the U.S. again in um, 2003, 2004 does not want to pay Saddam Hussein's debts. So the rejuvenation of the ODS debt doctrine, again, is in the context of uh, a despotic leader. But it, it it never really touches colonial debts where the leaders are not quite as despotic and much more complicated, in part because the countries and the scholars who pushed this doctrine were pushing it in a particular context. I don't know, Ugo, if you you have a different view. I, I mean, I am, I am a former colonial subject and grew up in the Caribbean. So I, I have a particularly jaundiced view of all of this.
3: I mean, there is also another aspect. So there is the aspect from, let's say, the NGO movements, you know, kill the dead and all this sort of stuff. And these people would like to cancel uh, all sorts of deaths. So there is a, a more, I don't know, leftist, if you want to call it this way, perspective, right? And there, there is a debate. Uh, as Mitu said, it's, it seems reasonable that when somebody uh, borrows to oppress its own people, uh, this that should not be enforceable. But then if you talk with market people, they tell you where do you draw the line, right? It's like, uh, where where does the guy become a despot? And and some people say, if you start going there, then nobody will ever lend to any country because, you know, no country is a perfect democracy. So other there is this other dimension. So some people said that maybe you should have an ex-ante declaration of odiousness, of right? So there is a famous paper by... Uh, Michael, Michael Kramer and Jaya Chandra, uh, which says, you know, at some point uh, the official sector might, or the UN or whatever might declare this country's odious, and from this moment on, debt contracted by this person by this country will not be enforceable. So there is a big also discussion on this uh, ex ante versus ex post, which is different from the Haiti case that we're talking about here.
0: Well, what do you uh, walk us through the basic contours of? Uh, the Haiti situation, the numbers, the claims, just sort of like give us the sort of like basic summary of uh, uh, the colonial debt that was incurred, why
2: the debt was incurred, how much it was and so forth. Okay, so I'll begin with the easy part, the the story, which is wonderful. And then I'll give Ugo the boring part about the numbers that in the end are much more important. So I think it's a bit embarrassing. Ugo and I both uh, consider ourselves scholars of international debt and have been doing this (laughs) for at least two decades. And neither of us had really paid any attention uh, to the Haitian independence debt of 1825. It just seemed like this old obscure thing. We hadn't really heard of it, uh, didn't seem relevant to most of what we did. Until uh, this last semester, or last year, really, when COVID hits and we decide in our classes, you know, maybe this is time to focus on some of the poorer regions around the world and see what's going to happen if they're really hit bad by COVID and they need to think about what kind of financial recoveries can we get some of my students in my sovereign debt class find this Haitian independence debt of 1825. And I want to dismiss it because it is not what I had planned that we would work on in the class. Uh, And then I started looking at it and started talking to Ugo and our other co-authors about it. And it's astounding. So in 1825, Haiti has a debt imposed on it By France. France sends a bunch of gunboats. I think there were 14 gunboats with 500 guns uh, pointed at the Haitian capital. And France says to the Haitian people Look, we are willing to recognize you as independent. Haiti had fought a bloody revolution against France and won its independence in 1804, so two decades prior. The French under Napoleon had tried to take back Haiti. They had failed. And then finally in 1825, and this is after the Louisiana Purchase, France sort of decides, you know, no more colonies, uh, at least in that part of the world. It's just too expensive when you keep losing. And so they try to negotiate with Haiti. Uh, We will give you your independence. We will recognize you as independent if you pay us 150 million francs. Now, to get some sense of how much this is, and Hugo will hopefully talk about what fraction of Haiti's revenues it was at that time, but the Louisiana purchase was about 15 million francs. This is 150 million francs they impose on Haiti with the gunboats pointed at them. And the calculation of this amount, uh, the historical record is not completely clear. But basically, the French king, Charles, needed this money to pacify the former plantation owners and their estates in France, and calculations were made based on the amount of loss that they suffered, specifically in terms of the number of slaves who went free as a result of the revolution. So that's the basic. That's, that's the debt that was imposed on Haiti. Haiti doesn't pay it back for almost uh, a century, actually more than a century. And much of Haitian borrowing in the next century is just to pay back this extremely large debt that they owe to France. Now, in terms of specific
3: numbers, um, I'll leave that to Ugo. So maybe the, the, we don't have good estimates uh, for GDP uh, at that period and or revenues, but whatever estimates we have suggested this amount was about 10 years uh, worth of revenue. So it's very large number. And or about uh, three times Haiti's GDP, uh, based on uh, on the on the numbers that uh, that we have now. Uh, so they were uh, very very large numbers, and, and as me to said, it's more uh, more than the Louisiana Purchase.
4: Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC.
1: So could we maybe talk a little bit more about why Haiti agreed to pay the indemnity? So, you know, you mentioned there were gunboats pointed at Port-au-Prince, which seems quite threatening. But on the other hand, um, Haiti did get something out of it. uh, And I'm sort of playing devil's advocate here, but they did get their independence recognized by France, even though they were essentially, you know, buying their freedom from slavery, which is terrible. But they got the recognition from France that led to further recognition from places like Britain. Um, that opened up trade relationships and things like that. Is there an argument to be made that this can't be considered odious because the population, you know, got something out of the agreement.
2: So you're asking the really tough question. Haiti, arguably, itself proposed that it would pay something to France. Now, they didn't propose this incredibly Mm. large amount. They were thinking more along the lines of the Louisiana Purchase, uh, and that would have still been at least half their GDP for the year. But perhaps manageable haiti at that point in time was one of the richest parts of the world which is why france was so desperate to hold on to it they they were a huge source of french revenues at the at that point in time but the legal question of whether or not haiti could be charged by france for a recognition or b uh, independence or C uh, for the slaves fighting a revolution and becoming independent um, is quite complicated. It's not at all clear, at least in our research, whether or not at that point in time it was acceptable under international law uh, for countries, new countries, to be charged for somebody else recognizing them. Uh, The law is quite murky. Now, we know it happened, but whether it was legally kosher is not clear. Can you charge a new country for it becoming free and fighting a revolution? Again, not at all clear. And then it's not clear either that we would apply the laws and norms of that time or whether we would apply modern conceptions of. human rights, where, you know, pay, making Haiti pay for the freedom of the slaves clearly wouldn't be acceptable.
3: Yeah, maybe just a small anecdote that uh, for the first 15 years after independence, uh, Haiti was actually split in two countries with a, with a president uh, in the south and a king in the north. So the president, was, uh, which was called Petion, was the first one to sort of propose Paying some indemnity, but again, as Mitu said, he had in mind uh, a much smaller amount. Well, the king in the north was always opposed to it.
0: So, the the, the idea that a country would have to pay uh, its former colonial master for recognition, to pay this extraordinary sum, to essentially escape, uh, you know, depart from slavery, obviously, it's uh, you know, it's grotesque. It's awful. Why is it important, or you know, at least intuitively, it is. Why is it important to fold it into the odious debt literature? Because obviously, the contours of it, while being, I guess, objectively and more morally odious, are different than the sort of conception of the uh, conception that we talked about in the beginning of a despot. Why is it important today in sort of the establishment of the study of odious debt to? weave that in as opposed to thinking of it as its own
2: distinct concept? What does that get? What does that accomplish? So again, you're asking uh, an extremely good question and a tough one. Here's my take on this. The, The odious debt movement is a powerful one. Just the rhetoric of that movement uh, has a lo- had, has had a lot of sway with NGOs, with academics, uh, in the popular press. So to get this debt that has really not gotten much attention, the Haitian independence debt of eighteen twenty five uh, you ask anybody in Haiti they know about it. They think about how many billions they are owed. But ask people outside of Haiti, uh, scholars who study this, uh, ask people in France, anywhere else in the world, they have no idea about this, to bring it into the odious debt uh, framework. And, And this is as odious of a debt that we've ever had in history. I think could give power, rhetorical power, to the movement to get some kind of compensation paid, but also would open the door to other similar colonial debts that have not been included in the odious debt discussion. So, that I mean, the, this goes back to the question that Tracy started with, which is, you know, how is it that The odious debt discussions really have been very limited to these despotic leaders and whether or not sort of Western creditors will get paid back on their bonds when there are all sorts of other stinky debts around the world, particularly colonial debts. I mean, think of uh, King Leopold of Congo. He borrowed heavily on the international debt markets, and then you know, basically committed genocide in the Congo. There's no discussion of you know those debts, but but this one is is a uh, this one is among the really just the stinkiest of those, to my mind.
1: Mitu, Me You mentioned um, the rhetoric of odious debt being a powerful influence. And I think here, we it's really important that we mention that even though there's been a lot of talk about Odia's debt, it hasn't actually been um, sort of acted upon in any real way. So the Iraqi debt um, that you mentioned earlier, and we actually uh, recorded an episode a while back with Simon Hendrickson, who did some really great work on this, The Iraqi debt situation was basically the closest the world ever got to actually acting on the principle of odious debt and negating some borrowings under Saddam Hussein. But it didn't actually happen. So I I guess two questions. Why hasn't it happened yet if everyone's talking about it so much? And then secondly, what good is talking about odious debt if it never actually comes to fruition?
2: So I'll use the Iraqi example. You guys had a great uh, episode with Simon. And just drawing from Simon's work, uh, discussing the Iraqi debt in terms of its odiousness was part of the strategy of the legal team there. And they knew they didn't have a leg to stand on if they actually had to go to court and try to argue that this doctrine existed. Now, there are legal scholars who argue that as a matter of customary international law, uh, such a doctrine has evolved. Uh, I am skeptical that you could actually persuade a court to do that. But the rhetoric of odious debt was powerful enough that the negotiators for Iraq were able to get in the Paris Club, the biggest write down of debt ever in history. I mean, it was something like a ninety percent write down of debt, and it was because, at least in part, that they clothed it in the rhetoric of odious debt. I mean, now they they did it brilliantly. I mean, they they got everyone basically to agree to take this massive write down because nobody wanted exposure of what had actually happened. And if we go back in time to the strategy that the lawyers for Haiti had planned in 2000, between 2002 and 2004, this was exactly what they had in mind. I don't think they thought They really had much of a chance of sort of winning a legal case, but they wanted to get into court. And once they got into any kind of international jurisdiction and they got a hearing, then uh, the atmospherics of how bad this was, was going to be on their side. So that's a long winded answer uh, to why this could have really
3: practical consequences. Can I add something, Tracy? I, I'm, of uh, you know, I'm by nature optimistic, and I remember one episode. And uh, so, if you remember, uh, around the in the nineties, there were people campaigning for for multilateral debt relief, and basically the position of the uh, you know U.S. administration and the G8 at that point was that this is never going to happen. And then at some point, it just happened, right? And the you know the White House was on board. And the people who were on board were exactly the same people who two or three years before said, this is never going to happen. The, you know, the, the World Bank is never going to cancel that owed by low-income countries. So in a sense, uh, maybe, uh, you know, preparing the ground, the sort of building a case uh, for something that you think is right, maybe at some point uh, things can change. So I also see it as in, in this sense, but, but me to always thinks that I'm a, I'm a dreamer. <laughs>
1: Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit.
0: You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Can we go, if we go back to the details of Haiti, I mean, uh, you mentioned the stats are not particularly reliable from that time, but maybe the debt was uh, 10 years worth of total, uh, total revenue for the country. At the time, and as you mentioned, it's still talked about today. And we ta- and as Tracy and I discussed in the intro, uh, Haiti is obviously one of the poorest countries. Uh, is known and under you know people think of it as one of the poorest countries in the region. How much did that debt contribute to the economic trajectory, the poor economic trajectory of Haiti? Some nearly two hundred years ago, or about two hundred years ago. How much did that uh, contribute to? the economic and uh, sort of disaster that uh, Haiti is known to be all these years later?
3: So, so we did a bunch of uh, back-of-the-envelope exercises. Some exercises are trying, uh, aimed at trying to estimate how much this money would be worth today. And uh, another exercise is exactly uh, focused on your question, Joe. How much of uh, the horrible growth performance of, uh, of Haiti over the past you know, 200 years can be attributed uh, to this debt. Uh, I'll tell you about the numbers, but before that, there is a document in in, in uh, a declassified document in the archives of the IMF. And this is a report about uh, of a mission to Ahiti in 1949. So the IMF must have been one or two years old. And let me use this to just give a big thank you to whoever manages the archives of the IMF because they did an amazing service. Mm-hmm. They put everything online, all these declassified documents. And now I can kind of read this stuff from my bedroom and it's uh, it's fantastic so anyway this 1949 uh, IMF document starts by saying fiscal policy in Haiti in general has not been development promoting because it has primarily been primarily motivated uh, by revenue yields and basically to service the debt and this has taken priority on any other type of investment that promoted economic development So without running any, let's say, statistical analysis, there is this, uh, you know, report from the fund from 70 years ago that basically says there is some problem linked to the debt. Having said this, there are some uh, econometric estimates on how uh, debt affects GDP growth. And there is a famous paper by uh, three IMF economists, again, um, Cathy Patillo, Alain Poisson and, and Luca Ricci. Which, uh, suggests, uh, ballpark estimates that high level of debt reduce growth between one, uh, and two percentage point per year. Now, if we apply the lower of this estimated, that is just we apply the 1% uh, growth reducing effect, we, uh, find that GDP per capita in Haiti now should be about $8,000, which is much higher than 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 what is today. And in fact, it would pet, put Haiti basically at the same level uh, of income per capita of, uh, of the Dominican Republic. Now, it's hard to say that, you know, without the debt, Haiti would be the Dominican Republic, but that's what you get from doing this calculation. And then if you compute the present value of this uh, differential in income per capita, you get, you know, a ridiculously high number. You get something like you know one trillion dollars, which is you know which is really a, a huge number. But even if you get that the growth effect of the debt, it's only one fifth of the lower bound estimate of Patio and co-authors, uh, You still get that the present value uh, of the growth effect of this debt is about fifty one billion uh, of today's dollar, which is. Uh, Three times of uh, a GDP, which interesting was the debt to GDP ratio when the debt was created.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, quite a coincidence. Um, OK, so so here we have this debt burden, which Mitu has described as like the stinkiest of all odious debt. We have something that, as Ugo just laid out, basically contributed to the long term um, poverty arc. Of Haiti. You can trace the impact of the debt on Haiti's current debt situation, you know, 200 years later, which is pretty amazing. What are the chances that odious debt actually comes into play and that we get some sort of legal process exploring this option? I I guess that's another way of saying, what would a legal claim on this issue actually look like? And is it more likely that we get a situation similar to um, the Iraqi debt where maybe odious debt is used as an argument um, for some sort of additional financial aid rather than total reparations, uh, you know, $50 billion or whatever, based on the economic impact of um, the original bonds.
2: This, in a sense, brings us full circle to the the question that you had asked, Tracy, about the existence of an odious debt doctrine. If you if we were really litigating this, so somehow we could get a jurisdiction like the International Court of Justice to hear this, that would be hard because France would have to agree to show up. Then I think it's a fairly straightforward legal claim under international law, even if you don't want to use the odious debt doctrine, here you would just make the argument that this was an unjust illegal debt that was imposed in 1825 and the money needs to be returned. So we would call it just give us restitution. You were not entitled to take our money. Give it back to us. And the way you would calculate damages uh, for them having unjustly taken your money and not even imposing punitive damages would be say would be to ask what are the opportunity costs of your having taken between 90 million francs and 150 million francs depending on how you make the calculation uh, back in 1825 or over this lengthy period so that's if you get in to some kind of tribunal. Now, the lawyers in uh, 2004 under uh, President Aristide were just about to file a claim There was this dream team of lawyers from around the world who were working pro bono for the Haitians. And and they thought they had a good chance of getting into a tribunal. And then uh, President Aristide uh, is overthrown and the new government decides that, uh, you know, it does not want to anger uh, the French who are supporting it in bringing such a claim and the whole thing disappears but this is not as implausible of a claim uh, as I would have thought legally the iraqi um, argument was this, this is um much more uh, potent but you have to get to some tribunal and you know uh, ugo and i uh, have presented our work in front of a few audiences and often we are faced with our friends who are French economists who have never heard of this. And they are completely outraged that, 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 that France did this. I mean, that, they, their reaction is, uh, I have not found their reaction to be defensive. I, instead, it's, why didn't I know about this and what can we do to fix it? I, I, I do think that this is a, a matter of public discussion. And that will result in something positive, particularly given the horrible state that Haiti is in now.
0: Tracy, I, I think that's a good place to leave it for me, unless you have anything further.
1: That works for me, yeah. I think you, you both laid it out, the issue, um, wonderfully. So thank you so much for uh, coming on All Thoughts and walking us through how uh, 200-year-old debt could uh, still be relevant to today.
3: Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. That was fantastic. I really, I really appreciate it.
1: So Joe, this is, as you can probably tell, a topic that I find endlessly fascinating, partly because I think it says something wider about financial debt. and. I don't think we think about this often enough, but debt is almost exclusively about morality and fairness in the sense that in order for debt to exist, you know, someone has to borrow and another person has to lend and someone ends up owing someone something. So, yeah. And so there are so many judgments and norms that go into how that story is told of who owes what to whom and why. And I don't think we step back and sort of consider those norms enough and the judgments that are shaping how debt actually functions and how we think about it.
0: Yeah. You know, the other thing I completely agree. You know, the other thing that's interesting is, you know, finance in general is like a kind of uh, I, I sometimes think of finance as a time machine because you're essentially, Mm. uh, uh, you know, you can can have cash right now that would otherwise say, like if you borrow money, you can have cash right now that would otherwise take several years worth of work. So, you know, you're sort of transferring, it's transferring of value, transferring of uh, money across time. And what Hugo and me to discuss is like essentially an extremely long version of that. And so you know, it's one thing. It's like we could all wrap in our heads very concretely how say debt that was taken out ten years ago may affect us today. But it, there's no particular reason to think that a debt that's two hundred years old, that people have forgotten about, that people around the world don't even know about or had never thought about before, might still be uh, relevant today. It it's uh, kind of an extreme outlier, but fundamentally. As you say, it's all part of the same uh, question, but I guess that's what makes this particular case uh, extremely interesting. And as me to point it out, sort of like worth folding into the odious debt literature.
1: Totally. And the other thing that I was thinking, and we've been talking a lot about this um, on AllBots for the past year now, but whether or not the extraordinary circumstances of 2020 and 2021 spark a a wider reckoning on some of these complicated issues. And I think, you know, we've spoken about attitudes towards debt shifting in the context of modern monetary theory and MMT. And I do wonder if given the terrible humanitarian situation unfolding in Haiti, you know, you have COVID, you have the president getting assassinated. Now you have another catastrophic earthquake. I do wonder if um, if you could see a a big shift in in the narrative around um, something like colonial era debt.
0: Well, that's interesting because Me Too made this point that even prior. So, you know, it's like, okay, why is this an important thing to classify as odious debt? And as he pointed out, yes, there is the legal dimension, but there's also the activist dimension. There's the NGO dimension. There's the kill the debt movement. And so much like MMT, which is sort of this hybrid between I would, you know, I would describe it as like a hybrid between sort of like pure economics and political activism, it kind of feels like situations like this end up being this hybrid between l- what's in the law, what's in the sort of legal uh, text, and also the general public and the activism around these things. And so I think you make a really apt point here that, you know, we could be in a moment where there is just sort of like more public awareness. And then that has this sort of like feed through effect to what happens in various courts of law and marketplaces.
1: Totally. And I would say that gets back to the sort of um, morality of bonds more widely. And this idea that, you know, ultimately a debt is about Fairness um, and achieving fairness in the outcome, and so in many ways, it's sort of the perfect instrument through which to discuss the injustice of um, the past. Like it fits very nicely into arguments because you can suddenly say, "Well, you owe us X amount for damages inflicted, you know, two hundred years ago," and we can put some sort of quantity on them, and we can talk about what the economic impact is. All right. Well, Joe, I could keep talking about this forever, but uh, <laughs> we should probably go. Um, should we leave it there? Let's leave it there. Okay. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
0: And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at the Stalwart. Follow our guests on Twitter, Ugo Panizza. He's at Upanitsa. Follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.